Welcome to Everyday Wellness Podcast. I'm your host, nurse practitioner, Cynthia Thurlow. This podcast is designed to educate, empower, and inspire you to achieve your health and wellness goals. My goal and intent is to provide you with the best content and conversations from leaders in the health and wellness industry each week and impact over a million lives. the honor of connecting with Sally Norton. She holds a nutrition degree from Cornell and a master's degree in public health. Her path has led her to becoming a leading expert on dietary oxalates, and she has a new book called Toxic Superfoods. Today, I spoke at great length with her about her background and what led her to being so passionate about these plant-based compounds, the role of oxalic acid, oxalate salts, and oxalate crystals, how they bind to and chelate minerals, how they lead to oxidation, disruption in glutathione, as well as minerals, why they're more commonly found now in our modern day lifestyles, how over 80% of Americans consume a diet deficient in vitamins and minerals, and how these can contribute to this, statistics from the U.S. Agricultural Society, the impact of consumer demand for quote-unquote superfoods, what role genetics and lifestyle play in our symptoms, what happens when we consume oxalate-laden foods, and ways to address this. I hope you will enjoy this conversation as much as I did recording it, and I want to take a moment to express appreciation for a recent iTunes customer review from Billion Dollar Matt. Cynthia is beyond knowledgeable, and I'd be doing a disservice by calling her an expert. She not only is at the top of her realm, but she brings a personalized touch that's like no other. I've appreciated listening to her show, reading her tweets, and having conversations with her. This is something you should tap into. Thank you so much, Matt. And please know that my team and I read your reviews on a regular basis. We're so appreciative. Every review is important to us. We really take these seriously. As I've told everyone, doing podcasts with Everyday Wellness is one of my favorite things I do in my business. Thank you so much. And I hope you will enjoy this conversation with Sally Norton as much as I did recording it. I would love to start the conversation with you sharing a bit about your own health journey and how you got so interested and passionate about sharing information about oxalates because as a licensed healthcare provider, it was not until I had my own health issues that I realized these can really be an instrumental component to why people are suffering needlessly. Well, please share that with your audience. I will. (laughs) will. It takes lots of voices. You know, there's a whole potential conversation to be had about all the mental barriers that we have. In fact, last night at bedtime, anticipating talking to you, I just wrote this whole page of notes in my date book. I'm like, you know, if we could just explore this kind of barrier to understanding this in our own heads and our allegiance to what is being said all around us and the difficulty of questioning basic cultural assumptions and it, it's just emotionally safer to pretend what we know is true. Yeah. And it's interesting. I probably haven't shared as much about this on my podcast, but in 2019, I spent 13 days in the hospital with a ruptured appendix and every complication you can imagine. And as you can well imagine, six weeks of antifungals, antibiotics, the stress of being in a hospital, losing 15 pounds, sick as stink. And a good friend of mine, who's also a colleague said, I think everything you're sharing with me in terms of your digestive issues is related to oxalates. Wow. And when we started to look at my diet, 
I realized, you know, I'm gluten-free, I'm dairy-free. What do I eat a lot of almonds and not so much almond flour preparations, but you just sweet potatoes because I tend that tends to be my higher carbohydrate food. And it just uncovered a constellation of symptoms that were exacerbated by my oxalate consumption, which was way higher than I would have anticipated. And the unfortunate thing is, I think many of us assume because these are unprocessed, considered to be healthy, even superfoods, I'll put that in air quote, we may find out that these don't serve us at all. And so when I stumbled upon your work a few years ago, I kept thinking, this is really powerful. And for me, part of what was my healing journey back from being so sick was going on a low oxalate diet. And even to this day, four years later, if I overdo it with, let's say, for example, it's a holiday, a celebration, I have too much almond flour, like I have a cake or I have cookies or something like that, my digestive symptoms start all over again. And it's almost instantaneous. And it's really a barometer for allowing me to recognize my body's trying to communicate that this is not something you should be doing with reckless abandon. Like, it doesn't mean I don't celebrate. It doesn't mean I don't enjoy things, but it means my life has a lot of, I would say, lower oxalate foods in it than it ever did before. It's a great story that yeah. needs to be heard. Yeah, I would agree. And your story, I mean, when I read it in its entirety in your book, I was amazed that you, it sounds like you've suffered for years. You know, were you at one point you were vegetarian and you were having all these musculoskeletal pain symptoms and you were tired and fatigued. And no one was making the connection that it was the oxalates in your diet that were precipitating a lot of these symptoms. Did you stumble upon research or how did you put those pieces together for yourself to come to an understanding that these plant defenses might very likely have been contributing to the symptoms you were experiencing? Yeah. So I've been exploring all the right ways to eat ever since I was like five years old. <laughs> And decided as a 12-year-old, I wanted to study nutrition to help people not get sick. And yet I was having already at that age, I was having arthritic-like pains. I would sometimes wake up in the morning slightly paralyzed for like a nanosecond. I literally couldn't move when I'd wake up. The back pain was uh, starting at that age. And then by the time I'm 19, I've got foot problems and it just cascaded. In fact, in high school, I really struggled with concentrating and focusing on studies. You know, I would sort of set myself in front of my books and have a hard time with the brain focus thing. And that continued to be a problem with mental fatigue, physical fatigue, aches and pains, arthritis, eventually fibromyalgia, definitely IBS, which I blame the IBS onset from my vegan days of being a busy young career person. And I would set up my vegan breakfast as uh, cooked beans in a slow cooker at night. So I stick mixed, mixed beans with a little bit of peanut butter and garlic and delicious flavors and let them slow cook overnight and then eat that for breakfast. And then of course I'd have a whole pot. So then it would be available all week. So I could be, have a busy life and not cook a lot and have bagels and beans and think I was eating well. <laughs> so that was a big problem because the IBS onset in 1990 really carried on forever. It didn't ever fully resolved. I had what's called post-infectious IBS, but the oxalate insight, whoa, that was very long in coming. And even understanding why was I having mental fatigue in high school? Why was I susceptible to this irritable bowel syndrome? And 
why was I having all these other problems that turned out to be oxalate, including osteoporosis in my 40s, excuse me, osteopenia, technically right down there though, real close to osteoporosis on the numbers. Like, well, what is going on with me, Miss Healthy, who does everything right? And I, I had this one time when I had on and off, I'd had like crotch itching and things like that and discomfort and issues, but nothing really big deal. But then I had about three days of really bad vulvodynia kind of pain. Like my crotch was really bothering the heck out of me to the point of like, it was really grabbing me by the throat, so to speak, like, oh my God, somebody deal with this. <laughs> and my husband looked it up on the internet. This is 2009. And he finds that there's a place, a thing in North Carolina, an hour from where I used to live and work called the Volvar Pain Foundation that claims that if you quit eating high oxalate foods, you can deal with your vulvar pain and pelvic pain. And by the way, there's this thing called connective tissue issues or syndrome of which I knew very little but I was kind of a good fit for that. I had, you know, aches and pains. I had weak skin. I would get really get like issues around my fingers. Like if I used soap at the dish, do cleaning dishes without gloves, my skin would get all tender. I would get, you know, hangnails that would be really painful and bleedy. And like, yeah, I was sort of wimpy in the connective tissue department and had issues, but none of that made sense, right? Because I know stuff. <laughs> I'm in the world of public health and integrated medicine, prevention, nutrition, and nothing in my background suggested that contact connection. Because in school, we know that you need a low oxalate diet as a therapeutic diet if you have repeated kidney stones. Because of course, oxalate is in plant foods and it, the main source of oxalate in our body is our diet. We eat oxalic acid in foods like spinach, and that's the major, that's 50% of the oxalate that gets in your body. And another huge chunk, at least another quarter, is coming from vitamin C, and vitamin C degenerates into oxalate, which is not something I was that aware of until I started doing the research. But so thanks to the Volver Pain Foundation, the oxalate concept needed to be revisited. Um, so I'm like, kind of all right, I'm busy. I can hardly function. And I have a very big deal grant writing job. You know, writing big grants for NIH funding is a, are massive brain projects. You got to do budgets and you got to do specific games and you got to put together a 25 page proposal. Perfect. Get it all fit. Follow the rules. I was doing that, helping my colleagues in my department write research grants and administer that whole process. It takes a tremendous amount of um, from your brain and ability to focus. I just needed to keep my job in work. So I wasn't adopting oxalate as the miracle cure, but I was willing to stop eating sweet potatoes and skip the spinach, which I hardly ate and maybe skip the chard and things like that. I didn't eat a lot of nuts because I already knew they bothered me. So I quit eating walnuts, but I couldn't tell that it helped that much because when I went back to my beloved sweet potato, I didn't feel worse. I couldn't tell. And there's a reason for that. So this ugly thing is really tricky because if you don't know what you're doing when you start the diet, even with the advice of the Volver Pain Foundation, they've specialized in trying to help people with my kind of issues, but I still didn't get it partially because I knew too much and partially because it's very tricky to interpret the body's reaction to the change in the diet. So I, you know, still had some issues and I had to quit my job eventually because I wasn't able to function anymore. I, my back was hurting me so badly. 
I was kneeling to do all this typing and writing for at least a third of the day. I would kneel for half an hour, an hour, and then I'd sit for half an hour and back and forth to try to cope with the back pain. But I was also really struggling with focus. It took everything I had to focus. And I used 101% of my capacity to get my work done. But I had to eventually give up and quit because I was also bleeding to death with fibroids. And I needed a total hysterectomy. They cut me open and I found out I had endometriosis. I didn't know I had scarring on the colon, pelvic full of blood, pelvis full of blood. And after the surgery, now I have no ovaries and I have, you know, a need for some support from an endocrinologist and he can't figure out what's wrong with me. So he sends me to the sleep doctor. Okay. That's probably a good idea since I don't, I'm tired. And it turns out my brain was waking up 29 times an hour, according to the the probes all over my body. <laughs> like that's not sleep. <laughs> no wonder I was struggling with this brain fatigue. No wonder. I'm surprised I didn't commit murder with that little sleep, right? It really can ruin your life. And so now I went on this quest, what's causing the sleep disorder? And the research says it's toxins. It's endotoxemia coming from SIBO, uh, you know, bacterial overgrowth. That's the magic answer to why you don't sleep. So yeah, I'm bloated all the time. I definitely have belching it. I have all the symptoms of SIBO. I get tested for SIBO, no SIBO. Who cares what the test says? I'm going to treat for SIBO. <laughs> so treat it for SIBO, no help whatsoever. And eventually now I, I'm aware that I have, I'm aware of when I'm eating oxalates, but I have this chronic constipation and the literature says I, you can't sleep and you can't work and you can't do anything because you, of some kind of endotoxemia. So I'm convinced it's the constipation. So I started eating kiwi for constipation so I could fix the sleep problem so I have a life. And after, let's see, August, September, late October, three months of kiwis every day, and my arthritis starts coming back, which I had really badly in my early life. Like from age 18, all through my 20s, I had really bad arthritis. And it was coming, I was getting stiffer and stiffer and, and arthritis. And I'm like, oh, are you kidding? The kiwi, the oxalates, this is like arthritis. I didn't know that, even though I should have known it. It's in the literature a little bit. And that's part of what the Volver Pain Foundation was getting at. You have connective tissue inflammation and connective tissue weakness. So I'm like, oh crap, I actually have to do this oxalate thing for real and get serious about it. And so I did. I finally knuckled down because now I'm not working. You see, when you're sick and working, you don't have the brain space to really learn this. So you're stuck. But now that I'm clearly can't work and I'm basically just my full-time patient, <laughs> I can figure this out and do it right. And within under two weeks of doing the low oxide diet correctly, my brain starts coming back. Like, wait a minute, the sleep thing was not the endotoxemia. It was the food toxemia from a few kiwi and a little bit of celery. <laughs> like, wow, this was mind blowing. And then it turned out over time, my very long list of health problems are all connected to oxalate. So my osteopenia reversed itself. My lifetime of foot pain reversed itself and on and on and on. It's really an incredible story because I think for so many listeners, we've all had experiences during our lifetime that maybe aren't easily explained, but when we really start leaning into what our body is trying to communicate to us, it can be really powerful. I think it would be helpful to talk about what oxalates are so that people that are listening understand because 
you know, as I was doing preparation for our conversation today, you know, it really stood out to me that there are many different types of, you know, components to oxalates, you know, you have oxalic acid and oxalic salts and crystals. And certainly for most of us that are traditional allopathic trained, we certainly have seen many patients with kidney stones. And, you know, I was a former ER nurse in Baltimore and I knew who my kidney stone patients were before they even came into the triage area because they all had the same appearance. And I would have women telling me that kidney stone pain was worse than labor. So it gives you a sense, you know, when these men come in and, you know, we as women sometimes weren't giving them as much sympathy as they deserve to have. I was like, wait a minute, from what I understand, these are incredibly painful, but that was the most exposure I had to this concept. But let's kind of explain what they are how they, you mentioned they come into us through our diet, but what they do in the body that starts to create so much inflammation and symptoms. Yeah. So oxalic acid is the parent compound of a set of things we call oxalates. When we call it oxalates, the lates mean salt because it's a chelating acid, meaning it grabs minerals. So this has negative single or double negative charge that's attractive to anything, any other ion, that means it's an ion with a charge. An ion with a positive charge, like calcium, magnesium, and other minerals, love each other and they connect. So this oxalic acid is a great chelator. It can take the rust out of your patio. It's been used as a cleaner. It has a lot of oxygens on it. It's the end product of oxidation. So certain compounds can oxidize into oxalic acid. So it easily forms in nature. Plants make it easily many of them in order to make it first make vitamin C, vitamin C is a precursor that can oxidize into oxalate. Uh, polluted clouds make oxalate. The acid rain that comes down on us is, contains oxalic acid. In fact, that's one of the dominant acids in that polluted acid rain. And this stuff is pretty toxic. It's a pro-oxidative because it's reactivity. It messes with charges in the body. Everything in the body that's living and moving and doing things is doing it because there's electricity there. There's a charge gradient across cell membranes and that's your mitochondria and that's your proteins. That's all the stuff that's happening at the, the life level. Like all of this, it's a lot of orchestrated enzymatic reactions that is life. And that stuff requires control over ions calcium ions and where your sodium is and where your potassium is in the cell and outside the cell, this stuff really matters to life. Oxalate muddles that up. It is a pro-oxidative disruptive toxin. It's considered highly toxic in, in the right concentrations. Now, all toxins require a certain dose to be at their full toxic potential. <laughs> And the problem is you're, you can drip in a dose slowly or you can drip it in fast. So there's potential for acute problems, especially if you've already had subacute problems over time with oxalate exposure by itself, because oxalate by itself has enough power to come along and injure cell membranes and turn on oxidative stress in a way that injures tissues and injures individual cells to the point of cells literally dying or not. They have some compensatory mechanisms if they're healthy and so on. But honestly, the oxalate's consuming the glutathione, increasing this stress in cells, and that decreases its own inherent self-protection. The antioxidant capacity that the body has is inherent, and that gets used up. So you get more free radicals in cells. This is turning on inflammation. 
hampering the structure and function of proteins, membranes, lipids, carbohydrates, DNA, mitochondrial DNA. And you get the mitochondria unhappy, you get the subcellular organelles unhappy, especially the endoplasmic reticulum, which makes your steroids, your cholesterols, your lipids. It folds the proteins, it assembles things. It's really important to center worker in the cell. It controls calcium ions. It's a storage place for calcium. Well, calcium is a really important, what we call signaler or messaging molecule that helps the cell, tells the cell what to do when and where. And once you have mitochondrial stress and you have endoplasmic reticular stress in cells, you're on your way to being highly vulnerable to any kind of neurodegenerative disorder that could be brain aging, it can be neuropathy, it can be vision and hearing loss, diabetes and metabolic problems, a blood flow problems and the downstream effects of that, this sort of oxygen and nutrient starvation and tissues, cancer, atherosclerosis, inflammation, infections, more vulnerability to other toxins like mold and heavy metals, and you know psychiatric problems, anxiety, and all kinds of disorders like that. So you get, you're messing with the most fundamental function with this little tiny chemical. And that's because it's so little and it's an ion, it floats in the water of your foods and just floats between the cells of your gut and goes straight into your blood cells, into the blood. The blood cells can pick it up actually, and it can roll around in the plasma. It doesn't tend to stay in the plasma though. It can stick to the, the linings of the capillaries and the veins and arteries. And that blood is immediately affected. In fact, one researcher, set of researchers looked at and are still looking at that one spinach smoothie, 40 minutes later, you have damaged circulating monocytes. Those are your immune cells. <laughs> one spinach smoothie is enough to put them in oxidative stress. We know that oxalate causes this pro-oxidative stress in the system. And it goes straight from your stomach to your bloodstream to your liver because everything you absorb from your digestive tract goes to your liver. The liver has open cells, the sinusoidal design so that all the contents of the blood can be examined, flushed, processed by liver cells. That includes the oxalic acid. The thing is the liver doesn't, can't metabolize or change oxalic acid or oxalate salts. All it can do is add more oxalate because the liver itself in the processing of amino acids creates a little bit of oxalate. So when your blood leaves your stomach and goes to your liver, and then it leaves the liver, it has even more oxalate than when it started. So now you've got blood leaving the liver from your spinach smoothie, your chia bowl, your almond bread, your almond flour, this or that, your dark chocolate, this or that, your sweet potato fudgy brownie, your turmeric laced, whatever. All of those foods are increasing oxalate in your gut, your blood, your liver, and then that circulation that leaves the liver goes straight up to the heart, passes through the diaphragm. You need the diaphragm to breathe, by the way, and that can be affected as well. The nerves that innervate the diaphragm can be affected, but then that's just passing through the, you know, what is it, the inferior, superior vena cava or something, straight to the heart. Now the heart pumps that blood into the lungs to pick up oxygen. So now oxalates hit your liver, your heart, your lungs, and then it pumps it back into the heart, so all the heart, both sides of the heart get it, then back out to peripheral circulation. So in the meantime, those blood vessels and those tissues are in a position to be exposed to oxalate. Because in the capillaries where you get this exchange of nutrients and oxygen, 
there's high pressure pushing oxalic acid into those tissues. There's lymph that might pick it up. There's the vein inside of the capillary beds that might pick it up. There's cells that are being bathed in it. And that is uh, toxic when you're doing it every single meal. I think you did such a beautiful job kind of painting the picture of why we feel these symptoms systemically, you know, from top to bottom, understanding that it's carried in our blood. So it means that it's going, you know, from our brain all the way to our feet. And what is it about our modern day lifestyles that makes us more exposed to high oxalate foods? You do a really nice job talking about this in the book. But I think that as we have gotten to a point as a society where we want to have strawberries year round, and we want to have sweet potatoes year round, the foods that we're choosing to eat that aren't per se seasonal are definitely contributing to this issue of why we are kind of bathed or in this overexposure of high oxalate foods kind of unknowingly. Completely unknowingly. We have no radar for oxalate. I've heard from many of my followers that most doctors don't know what it is. When they mention oxalate, they go, what's that? So any listener who hasn't heard of oxalates, you're like everyone else. Oh, modern people have not been hearing the word oxalate. Even if you get kidney stones, they don't tell you having an oxalate stone. They tell you having a calcium stone because it's calcium oxalate. That's that salt that's forming. So yeah, we live in the lap of luxury in modern life. We have grocery stores and convenience stores open 24 seven. We can eat the same food any time of year. And no, there's no longer waiting for strawberry season. We don't wait for blackberry season. We don't wait for almond season, which didn't used to exist. (laughs) Peanut butter season was invented a hundred and something years ago and it's year round. We live higher than kings and queens ever did because we use all this fossil fuel to produce foods. We have these trains and boats and planes and refrigerating foods anywhere. We can refrigerate foods on a plane, on a train, on a boat, on a truck. We've got 24-hour grocery stores. We've got greenhouses and we've got, we can use wherever the weather's good for growing something at a certain time of year, we've got it. And we somehow have the capacity to send enough planes back and forth all over that you can have whatever you want. And people have this entitlement attitude. You should have whatever you want. And if someone thinks it's good for you, because it might have this old theory that's like 40 years old and dying about antioxidants and foods, you're going to justify that. Who wants to interfere with your luxury life, your modern privileges? Yeah, no. And it's interesting because, um, you know, when I, as I was reading the book and kind of thinking thoughtfully, and we've had many guests that talk about killer kale and, you know, my mother who's Italian is convinced I'm going to die because I don't eat spinach and I don't eat kale. And I just say, mom, if, if those work for you, great. They don't work for me. They don't make my body feel good. They remind me of how I felt four years ago when I left the hospital, same digestive issues. But I think it's the overconsumption of these high oxalate foods, but you also kind of discuss the concept of meal frequency and how, you know, these highly processed hyperpalatable foods, I mean, all these things are contributing to why we are increasingly becoming sick, may not solely be related to oxalates, but the meal frequency piece, the poor metabolic health, the overconsumption of food-like substances, all of these things are contributing to the disease that we're seeing today. And, And certainly for me, 
you know, I've been in healthcare for over 25 years and what my patients were struggling with in the 1990s is very different than what my patients are struggling with now. And so we're evolving into an increasingly unhealthy population. It's something that is reversible, but I think that many clinicians are not aware of oxalates. They're not aware of a lot of the ways that these, and I'm going to put it in air quotes, these superfoods are contributing to poor health of their patients. They just assume if they keep telling their patients to have celery juice in the morning, because it's great, it's going to be hydrating and nourishing, not realizing that, you know, that oxalate bomb first thing in the morning is kind of setting you up for problems. If you are susceptible to a high oxalate diet. Yeah. We have a problem of what we call hypernutrition or <laughs> overnutrition, you know, malnutrition where we're eating too many calories and too often, and it's all highly processed and it's not in its native form, which is or isn't, depending on what kind of foods we're talking to about, is or isn't a problem. But we're, we have long been saying really since the 1950s, really since World War II, when we sort of stopped allowing for starvation and you, know, you can have whatever you want. We think that vegetables matter because they're low calorie. We're trying to solve the don't eat too much. Food is everywhere and food is everywhere and you can eat all the time. We'll just eat a bunch of nothing like celery that has like practically no calories in it and you can't hurt yourself. That's the attitude because we think it's all about people just being gluttons. But we develop gluttony because our bodies are starving for actual nutrients and they're toxic. And we've got, you know, only so many ways to cope and food is an acceptable addiction. It's okay to cope with your feelings of being unloved or whatever's the hidden pathology under eating disorders, whatever. We have total permission. That's how you, you go and have fun. Now everything in social event is food. Go out and meet the girls for some food event. It's food plus alcohol often. And there's all this symbolism around cake for birthdays. It's important to give your one-year-old a chunk of chocolate cake. Why? <laughs> you know, like, we are an eating disorder as a culture. We have way too much food all around us. We use food for all the non-nutritive purposes we can imagine. We use it as a symbol for love. And we're, we think that as long as we throw in enough broccoli and vegetables, you can get away with that. And that mixture of giving ourselves permission to eat garbage and eat too much and throw in the healthy vegetables to fix it all is really clashing in a big, toxic, ugly mess. And it's interesting because I reflect back on, you know, obviously now I have teenagers, but I know that when my kids are younger and when they're younger, they don't, they're kind of besodden to whatever their parents feed them. And so I recognize very early on, I have a child with life-threatening food allergies to peanuts and tree nuts. And so our world was small for a few years till I felt comfortable knowing that, you know, we could actually eat outside the house without his allergies being triggered. But when they would go to parties and my younger son in particular, the artificial colored frostings on cakes, he would become a different child because it would trigger all this hyper, you know, activity. It would you know, this child who can normally focus and had no issues is all of a sudden you couldn't get him to focus and he couldn't, he almost couldn't help himself. He was just like running around like a crazy person. But I think it has very much become a normal part of all culture that we eat junk and that those of us that choose to eat less often, I'll just put it that way, the way you choose to intermittent fast or not, but eat less often, choose not to drink alcohol as an example, maybe choosing not to 
you know, maybe you don't eat dairy, maybe you don't eat gluten. Uh, when you go to places, people are oftentimes very triggered by our own choices. And I always say, if someone's triggered by how I choose to eat, it's really more a reflection of them than it is of me. And so the acknowledgement that as I've been able to navigate raising children in a culture that is very food focused, you know, celebrations or wings and pizza and, you know, an overconsumption of processed carbohydrates and all of these different things that it forces me to reflect on the fact that we probably don't eat like the average person. And I've just come to realize that for each one of us that's listening, if there's something that doesn't make you feel good, I give you permission to not eat it. Like you don't have to love foods that don't love you back. And I think that's an important distinction because, you know, in many ways, sometimes people will say, oh, well, I suspect something bothers me, but it's too inconveniencing when I go to someone's house to pass on whatever is this being served. And I said, no, it's actually okay. It's a way of honoring yourself, just like you did navigating the oxalate issue and saying, I'm having all these symptoms, but as soon as they're removed from my diet, I feel completely differently. And I think we need to give ourselves the opportunity to acknowledge that for each one of us, that might look very different. Now, when we're talking about the oxalate levels of particular types of foods, in the book, you talk about these U.S. agricultural stats and two seemingly benign foods, sweet potatoes and spinach, which are both very high in oxalates. In terms of crops, they had the biggest increases in acreage from 2012 to 2017. Sweet potato had a 38% increase. Spinach had a 51% increase. When you were reading those statistics, how did that make you feel? I can imagine as someone who's trying to help people become more aware of the potentiality of having issues related to oxalate consumption, but knowing that this is now a huge focus of the agricultural industry to increase the availability of these foods in particular. Well, they're responding to consumer demand. And, you know, it was clear to me during all my years in the program in integrated medicine, that juicing books and all this was coming out massively, like the push for juicing is 30 years long. And it really happened back in the late sixties and early seventies with the the seventies, we had kind of a, almost like a emergence of cancer being coming really common and carrot juice was like the answer to cancer treatment way back, way back in the seventies and eighties and so on. And so there's been this trend in the field of, you know, holistic, anything, holistic health, anything, you name a, some subset of that has been pushing the vegetable thing as the ultimate answer. And it's coming from lots of places that are hundreds of years long, but still we have this movement where consumers are using it more. I have a good friend and neighbor who's been working at a grocery store since she was senior in high school delivering groceries to the car. It's during this COVID era, the grocery stores all needed people to do your shopping for you in the store. And she's like, people are buying massive amounts of spinach. And people tell me all the time, they go to the big box, like the Costco's and they buy spinach and like three pound clamshells and they'll use that every four days. They'll use it up. So people have been told to concentrate these foods and are using them. So it's reflected in the agricultural statistics. And I think that produce is, is one of these almost a lost leader in grocery stores. It's produce only lasts so long. Honestly, spinach is old by the time you brought it home in terms of its nutrient quality. It's already diminished and all the things we think are good about it are already faded away by the time you get it home because it needs to stay very cold and be eaten pretty close to when it's picked. And that's not what's happening. But you have to go back to the grocery store pretty often to maintain fresh produce in your house. 
And that's important for the grocery industry to get you back in the door and remind you why you're here right there. You walk in the door and the first thing you see is the beauty of fresh produce. It gives you this brain. It's almost like a little endorphin hit to see a beautiful laid out display of produce. There's something inherently effective about that. We're being manipulated on lots of levels to eat vegetables and fruits and value them. And it's reflected in the fact that we're growing a lot more of them. And I think honestly, the push to eat produce comes from its profit motive, that the push to produce a railroad system that took everything all the way to California and back was to help make California economically viable. And it's major piece of the economy of a California is the produce and food. And that's how we justify the railroad. Like our whole economic system is built on agriculture and our nutrition system is built on top of that. So our nutrition information comes from the agricultural folks who says, eat these foods. Yeah. It's interesting how there's this seemingly lack of connection, lack of transparency for most people. They're just not recognizing that these things go together. Very interesting about how rapidly spinach loses exactly the nutrients that we are trying to utilize it for. I think about my mother who buys those massive things of spinach and eats spinach with everything because she's been conditioned to believe that that's helpful. Let's pivot a little bit and talk about what is the impact of genetics and lifestyle play and symptoms, because I think this is really interesting that obviously there are some of us that are going to be more susceptible to the exposure to oxalates than perhaps others. I think there are people who are seemingly completely disconnected from their bodies, that even if they were having symptoms, they would not be willing, whether it's cognitive dissonance or something else, they're just not willing to believe that food is contributing to their symptoms. But how does this play out in the literature and the research? Well, the most interesting piece in the literature is coming from the literature on primary hyperoxaluria, which is a genetic deficiency problem where the genetics have changed. It's like 150 ways that genetics can be off that affects the cells, the liver cells, especially ability to manage amino acid metabolism. Amino acid metabolism gets skewed and messed up because you don't have the right enzymes or they're not in the right place. Like there's 150 ways to get this wrong. And what it causes is high production of oxalate in the body. And this is a deadly disease. Sometimes it shows up within the first six weeks of life. Usually it shows up in childhood at some point, but sometimes it doesn't show up till you're 50. So right there, you see huge genetic variance on when the kidneys fail or some other thing fails enough to get enough of a workup. And unfortunately in the science, we focus only on the kidney damage and the kidney stones. So the assumption is, that all the other bodily problems are secondary to the kidney problems. And it's probably quite the opposite of that. So we wait in these patients till they have complete kidney failure and other serious problems, growth, redartation, and, you know, arthritis and broken bones and whatever. We wait for that point and then we work them up and we find out they have this genetic disorder that will kill them. And in many cases, there aren't any symptoms. Like I said, you can have this genetic disorder of overproduction of oxalate And sometimes the only symptoms these patients show up with is neck pain, just a little bit of neck pain. And then it turns out to be a deadly disease that will seriously shorten your life. You know, infants who are diagnosed with this problem usually don't make it to 18 months old or two years old. It's pretty deadly pretty quickly because they're going to need a new liver ultimately. And if the system, if they're too young to have a liver, you know, it's just not going to work. They're getting better at managing, you know, the liver transplants and 
antioxidant therapies and different ways to try to support the body. But these patients, what's so interesting about them, they all have the same disease, primary hypoxylaria. Some of them, their bones dissolve out from underneath them and they're just this weak, exhausted, painful lump of in a wheelchair. Other people die with this with no bone problems at all. Some people, their teeth fall out completely. Usually there's, you know, lots of kidney stones, but not always. Sometimes it's just something called nephrocalcinosis is the major form of kidney problems, which is very common. Most of us die with some degree of nephrocalcinosis. Most of us die with oxalate crystals in our thyroid gland, our bone marrow, our eyes, our bones. And uh, sadly, we're eating high oxalate foods thinking they're protecting our eyes. And in fact, with my clients and followers, and like I reversed all those problems, including osteopenia, but night vision, cataracts, visual acuity, hearing loss, fibrosis, all kinds of problems can disappear when you quit eating oxalate. That's really fascinating. I would imagine that there's an absorption piece as well. Right. For those who have like bariatric surgery, which I saw a lot of that in cardiology because oh, yeah. we convinced our patients to gain enough weight to have their gastric bypass so that they could then qualify for their insurance to cover their surgery instead of talking to them about lifestyle changes. Wow. Wow. That, that happened a lot. Quite a reveal. Yeah, exactly. So individuals that have had, you know, bariatric surgery, I would imagine they've got absorptive issues to begin with, especially if they've had removal or rerouting of their digestive system. Has that been something that you've seen clinically as well? I've had a handful of people that are post-bariatric surgery, but it's very clear in the medical literature that bariatric surgery, you need to be on a low oxalate diet if you're going to have bariatric surgery. That's very clear. And yet it's not at all in the clinical practice. You should have to sign in, in your consent forms. There should be a whole half page explaining you will not eat spinach. <laughs> you will not eat dark chocolate. That's part of the price you pay for a malabsorption syndrome that's permanent. The point of these surgeries is to prevent you from absorbing nutrients. And what it does is it allows you to absorb more toxins like oxalate and makes you more and more deficient in nutrients and it leads to cancer, arthritis, bone problems, you name it, and, and all kinds of serious health problems. Yes, your level of absorption is the key. So you don't even need a high oxalate diet to become sick with oxalate if you are what's called a hyperabsorber, which any kind of leaky gut and gut inflammation will raise the how much you absorb. Uh, supposedly, according to the literature, a healthy gut absorbs about 10, maybe 15% of the oxalate you eat which is bad enough, that's enough. But if you also have leaky gut and other kinds of inflammatory issues, your absorptive rate could be 50% or more. That is tremendous. And then there's also, so there's really three sources. You eat oxalic acid directly and it goes right into your bloodstream or everything goes in your bloodstream that's toxic because you have inflammation in the gut or you're over-consuming vitamin C and collagen, which are molecules that the liver can convert or just convert into oxalate in the body. You know, as we're talking and as I read your book in 2018, again, I probably haven't shared much about this with my listeners. I got the worst food poisoning I ever had in my entire life. I was in Morocco. I told my husband, I was convinced I was going to tear my esophagus. I mean, it was just projectile vomiting. It was very unpleasant, but we think that that was probably the starting point, you know, the degree of endotoxin that I was exposed to. And then you know, five months later, ending up in the hospital with a ruptured appendix, all these connections. And so to your point, 
the average person should only absorb 10 to 15%. I'm sure for a long time, unknowingly, I was absorbing way more than that because I had this leaky gut syndrome. And we reflect on the degree of metabolic disease in this country right now, metabolic syndrome, diabetes, PCOS, et cetera. We know that those individuals are at higher risk for having issues related to this malabsorption or overabsorption of nutrients. Um, you also mentioned collagen peptides. How many people are taking collagen peptides? I even have to be careful with that. So when I read this, I was like, hmm, I probably need to be doing that a whole lot less often. We think of it as being benign, but the recognition that sometimes things that are seemingly benign may not be good for us. What do you think about you know, dairy-free vegan diets? Does that make us more susceptible to gut irritants from particular types of quote-unquote health foods? Certainly in the oxalate story, dairy-free is a big problem. So is gluten-free. The dairy-free means less calcium. Dairy is the predominant source of calcium in human diets these days, unless you're eating bones straight up, like you eat sardines all the time and eat extra, make an extra effort to eat bones. There just isn't that much calcium in foods that we eat. So dairy, take it out of the diet. And now you have oxalate free rain because there's no calcium there to bind it. There's way less bioavailable minerals. The minerals in milk are very bioavailable. They're free to interact and be available as nutrients. They can interact in the food itself. And to some degree, 10 to 25% of the oxalate in food, if the dairy calcium is free to mingle with it, can reduce absorption of oxalate. So you take dairy and calcium out of the picture and you've got another wide open highway for oxalate just to freely get in. And especially if you liquefy the oxalate containing foods in the source of soups and smoothies and juices, because now it's very well dissolved in the water and water is the conduit that brings it into the body. So the juicing is not so good. The dairy-free is not good. And then if you go gluten-free, because of course you've gut problems, everyone has to go gluten-free for their gut you're now likely to be told, well, now you can have chia seeds, almond flour, buckwheat, teff, quinoa. These gluten-free foods are very high in oxalate. So you go from a normally high oxalate diet to an exceedingly high oxalate diet when you do the gluten-free. And when you do the dairy-free, you go from a diet that's you know bad enough to worse. I think there's probably a lot of people listening that are thinking, hmm, you know, maybe I need to be more conscientious about the foods that I'm choosing to eat. And if you already embrace an elimination diet of some sort or another, to really make sure that you're being conscientious about avoiding eating solely high oxalate foods, let's kind of circle back to some of the things that you've already touched on. You talked about how oxalates can have this neurotoxic effect and impact brain function. Do you see an upregulation in reported symptoms of like anxiety and depression and mood disorders in relationship with the consumption of high oxalate foods? It's easier to see it in the reverse where people have had serious lifelong problems with anxiety, depression, and, you know, this sort of flat affect. We see this a lot also when talk more about the flat affect thing and the, the changes in the mood that come and go when you're trying to recover from oxalate poisoning. But what's really been amazing to me is people have written to me and clients and so on, followers, hey, I've been in therapy for 30 years. I don't need it now because I stopped eating dark chocolate and sweet potatoes. Like, unbelievable 
that to me, that's real observation. Like we've been trying to be well for years and tried everything there is to try. And you try this and you do it correctly with the right information, which is not easy because most of the information out there is wrong. Even about what foods have oxalate or don't is some of it is just completely flat out wrong. So it's really tough to do this well, which is why it was a real need for the book for many reasons, but at least I made an effort to try to vet the information and get the data right around what foods are high and low best we have, which is never perfect. But this, the fact that finally something makes such a dramatic difference should get our attention because that's real world observation. Some people want to discount that which is sad because what you're doing is you're using your abstractions and your cultural beliefs and making them more important than observing actual things in reality. It used to be that science was about cataloging what's happening in the real physical world around us. And those of us who've lived this are very clear how real it is. Absolutely. You know, what I found interesting was for a lot of middle-aged women, especially people that are working with me and my team, they think it's benign to have to get up at night to urinate. So it's a term we use, nocturia. It should not be happening for a variety of different reasons. But you mentioned that nocturia, so getting up at night to urinate, it can lead to cystitis, which is this inflammation of the bladder. But this in and of itself can be a sign of too much oxalate use. No question about it. I would say the most likely explanation for having to pee too much or pee at night or having to run to the bathroom urgently because you're leaking, or like having to pee when there's like two tablespoons there, or being able to pee out two quarts at a time. I used to be really good at that. (laughs) (laughs) Those are all symptoms of oxalate irritation in the bladder and the urinary tract. You eventually, for some people, this is again, it's so different in each person, right? So some people tolerate more oxalate than others. That's clear in the fatal dose, somewhere between three and 15 grams is what it takes to kill you acutely with oxalate. Three and 15, that's a huge gap. Some people get away with it more, but it's also, there's the circumstances we can't always distinguish. But waking up at any kind of urinary irritation, oxalate is the major toxin in urine. No question, oxalate is the number one toxin that leads to chronic kidney disease and problems with the kidney, but also with the entire urinary tract. You can end up with a problem of bladder stones and not know it. But with interstitial cystitis, this is pain in the bladder. It's like having a permanent rash where the mast cells and the other protective immune cells that live in the bladder lining are constantly being irritated and turned on. And they are so turned on, their numbers are increased. They're like a mad army trying to protect you, just getting pissed off after every time your bladder fills up with oxalate, which is cyclic too. So your symptoms with this kind of ebb and flow a little bit. And some days you can't drive across town without having to stop at two or three gas stations. And other days you almost feel like a normal human being. And that's really reflective of this behind the scenes, completely unstudied management that the body does in when oxalate is moving through and out of the urine. It's really fascinating because some of what I talk about on intake with women is you know, do you get up at night to urinate? And for some people, it's, oh, I drank too much water. I got up twice. It's That's my norm. Other people, it is habitual, chronic. Then we start thinking, is it a sleep issue? You know, for me, this is now on my radar to be asking people, you know, talk to me more about your diet. Because as an example for constipation, one of the things that I have recommended is like a frontline agent other than eating more green food, bitter green foods 
is a tablespoon of fresh ground flax and a tablespoon of fresh ground chia seeds that you can, you know, put on a salad or you can put in a smoothie. I mean, thinking about how these things, you know, they, they seem pretty benign, but over time they can add up in a susceptible individual. You mentioned vulvodynia. And I think for a lot of women, you know, these are symptoms that sometimes they're uncomfortable talking about, you know, maybe they're not even talking to their GYN or their midwife about it, but understanding like pain in the you know, the vulva or the vaginal area is definitely could be a symptom of many things, but not something that you want to ignore. Understanding, as you mentioned, that oxalate toxicity, you mentioned that for kidney stones or nephrolithiasis, 80% are primarily calcium oxalate and they impact 12 to 15% of the population. I would imagine some of them are underreported. I think sometimes people just have flank pain there. They just, it goes away and they don't think about it again. Has it been your experience that once people are conscientious about their diet, reducing the oxalate level, that they have a complete remission in their stones? Because some people just seem to deal with them on a frequent basis. I had a lot of patients in cardiology that it was like every six months, they would end up going in for lithotripsy or procedures uh, or end up in the emergency room because they were in so much pain. Well, the high drama kidney stones is one type of kidney stone. And then, like you say, there's actually asymptomatic kidney stones and there's the possibility of passing kidney stones without a lot of symptomatic drama too. So there's, there is a huge kind of mystery around how many of us are being affected by kidney stones. My experience is the low oxalate diet is super critical to anybody with any kind of kidney problems, especially kidney stones of any type of stone, even though there's 20% of stones might be from something else. It's still the pathology of oxalate is always contributing to pathologies in urine and, and kidney. So you never want to leave a troublemaker on the table when you're having something as serious as this kidney stone problem repeated over and over again, particularly. The interesting thing is that the kidney stone problem is partly reflective of the fact that the whole body is accumulating oxalate. And body accumulations of oxalate not only create nanocrystals and microcrystals that damage and harm tissue and tissue function and glandular function and so on, they're an irritant to the immune system. The immune system tries to protect the local tissue and itself from these oxalate crystals, especially when there's too much and they're building up gradually over time. It tries to sort of bury them in these wrappers that keep them from interacting directly. So you can have this going on with no symptoms. The problem with changing your diet is now you're giving the tissues permission to get rid of those deposits. And that turns back on inflammation that can create symptoms locally, but it also re-releases, mobilizes previously immobilized silent oxalates. The cells have to dissolve it down, which is a messy process, and then can release oxalic acid back into the bloodstream. And it can, in some cases, it can happen in enough tissues that it's so much coming from so many places that it's worse than post spinach smoothie. It's like you just drank two spinach smoothies at once by releasing the old ones from your thyroid gland and your arm tendons. And that can set you up for more kidney stones. And what I've seen is in postmenopausal women who've had this history of eating healthy, they are the ones who are, are the most likely group to have their first kidney stone ever when they go on a low oxalate diet. Almost cruel. You know, I, I think about, um, you know, most of my, my listeners are in perimenopause and menopause and as if we're not dealing with enough to understand that we do something that ultimately will do good. And then we end up with a kidney stone almost seems a little bit cruel, but that can be fixed and prevented. Yes. That's why you need to like really understand it. Cause you can, even if you're mobilizing oxalate from the tissues, 
if you've had a history of putting up with it, your kidneys are inherently able to put up with it. You just need to make sure that you have enough citric acid and a good pH, enough magnesium and so on in your urine and in your body to prevent that clumping of the oxalate crystals. A lot of us have the power to pee out oxalate crystals without them becoming stones. And you can tell if you've ever produced cloudy urine, chances are that's that crystal urea that also involves when the kidneys are filling up with crystals fast, the tubules will dilate and release those crystals, but sometimes the tubules will just shed their cells. It's like, okay, guys, you gotta go, sorry. Austin, you know, like you're gone in this, like this suicidal mission that this body's willing to do. We're going to give up some cells, slough off cells. So you get both crystals and cells and that debris is invisible one by one. But when you have so much of it, it's refracting light and it makes it look milky and cloudy. So if you can produce cloudy urine, that's a sign of good kidneys, just need enough citrate. And we really recommend lemon juice or other forms of citric acid and even acetic acid can help a little bit, that's vinegar. But really lemon juice, citric acid, or ways of alkalizing the body, because all of this causes acidity. The turned on inflammation causes acidity, oxalate causes acidity, and so on. The stress in tissues causes acidity. So if you get enough minerals, citric acid, and check your pH of your urine, you can prevent the kidney stone. The thing is you have to be willing to believe that that's possible. Most people are like, oh, I'm invincible. I've always eaten well. Now I'm going to do this right thing and not eat spinach and chocolate so much and forget that you'd rather need to juice lemons. <laughs> exactly. And it's interesting. Like I've always loved lemons squeezed into my water in my feeding window. And so unknowingly, as I was reading your book, I was like, huh, I had no idea that that's probably helping me. Let's briefly touch on, and, and you were starting to allude to it. You know, you mentioned supplements and things that can be helpful. You also talk quite a bit in the book about um, mineral bathing. And so I know some of the people who are listening are curious, okay, if we eliminate these things or go on a lower oxalate diet, what are other things that we can help support our body with? And so let's kind of end our discussion talking about that. Calcium is an important binder of oxalate and helps the body remove oxalate. So it's really a great idea to increase your calcium consumption. If you're going to use supplements, which I encourage, I recommend starting with one, like 250 milligram dose of calcium citrate or other form of calcium at bedtime, because nighttime is when the body does its janitorial work and does a lot of healing and repair. So you're likely to be involved in oxalate clearing metabolism overnight, which is one reason why you get that nighttime urination problem. And that can persist in some people when they're on a low oxalate diet, if they're clearing oxalate. So having calcium at night can help you sleep better. It's calming. Same with magnesium. You usually have both magnesium and calcium at bedtime. And if that's going well for you, then you can add it again and again. And you can take calcium four times a day to make sure that calcium exists in the colon. We're really taking the calcium so it exists in the colon as a binder to encourage excretion by way of the colon. Because the kidneys have to do so much of the work, but the colon is happy to help out when it sees kidney stress, it sees acidity in the body that turns on these transporters in the colon that will pull oxalate out of the blood. If you have calcium there, that helps encourage them. Bacteria, the right bacteria there would encourage them. They're still trying to figure out how to bring back the bacteria that help to degrade oxalate in the colon. That's been a very difficult scientific puzzle because there's a whole ecosystem of bacteria that need to be able to work together so those bacteria can survive. So we don't have a good way to do that, but if you, the calcium is a great stand-in for that and it works great. Now, some people, the calcium 
encourages excessive clearing from tissues and they, they have to be really careful. So that's why we just start with one dose and check that out for a while and see if that's making anything worse in terms of signs that your body may be really eager to upchuck the stuff out of its tissues. Like some bodies have just spilling so badly. They're so done with all these deposits and have a pretty strong immune system. That's like muscular and ready to get it out of the system. And it's better to have the recovery of your health, recovery of oxalate deposits in the body. Really, it's going to take decades anyway. Rushing to a finish line is just rushing into toxicity. So you want to support in ways that support slow release and keep the inflammation down because all of this requires inflammation to get it out of your system. I really encourage people to try to use sauna and those kinds of anti-inflammatory practices to keep bringing the body back down, down, down from inflammation. Because in the clearing process, you, you could be up for a decade of elevated inflammation, just dealing with the crystal deposits in your thyroid gland and so on. And it's really important to not be in chronic inflammation and see that the, if you do have symptoms that they're cycling off, they're just not all the time cycling on and off. And one of those symptoms I mentioned earlier should circle back to that is this change in your mood and motivation where you kind of lose your oomph for life because what I call the flat F factor, you just have apathy for everything, things that you normally care about, you do not care about. That's the neuroinflammation showing up when you turn on the inflammation for the oxalate clearing and the direct effects of oxalate and the mobilization of them and the higher level of inflammation. You need things like sauna, time in nature, art, balance, relaxation, rest. You need all those things. You really have to work on correcting the inflammation. Well, I think it's so important and, you know, messages that other guests have kind of identified, you know, taking care of yourself, stimulating that parasympathetic nervous system, resting more, exercising less, you know, leaning into things that you can easily do from home. You have a great recipe for mineral bathing, which incorporates several of the things I talk about, especially because I'm so magnesium focused, things that I definitely encourage patients to do. Please let my listeners know how to connect with you, how to purchase your book, which I really enjoyed reading. It's a great reference point. And I think the one thing that I really took away from reading the book was the fact that even myself, as much as I think I know and understand about oxalates, there was a lot of really good information that was new for me and definitely tweaks that I need to do within my own diet. Yes. So please come visit me at my website, which is sallyknorton.com. You need the K to find the right Sally. And in there, you'll find lots of just discussions on different pages. There's a shop page where you can get a cookbook PDF with 180 recipes and some other downloads, many of them free. You can join a group class. The book is available worldwide as either a print book, an ebook, or an audiobook. I really do encourage people to take a deep look at the book and feel free to take your time with it and reread it a hundred times. If you have to, I've reread it a few thousand times having had to write the thing and I still can read it and still like, yeah, I did manage to put together a lot, a lot of concepts, big stuff and try to jam it down into relatively simple stuff. Some people think, you know, this is this giant manual, but actually it's the simplified version of a reality that you're not getting from anywhere else. I would agree. Thank you again for your work today. It's been a pleasure connecting. What an honor to be with you. Thank you for sharing this with your listeners. I so appreciate it. If you love this podcast episode, please leave a rating and review, subscribe and tell a friend. 